The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Part 3, Book 4, Chapters 9-15. through 15. In this chapter, we see what it looks like when the inexorable battle the merciless. The Republican soldiers, though vastly superior in numbers, face the terror of attacking through the breach. They must cross into an abyss through an opening with teeth like the mouth of a shark, down a dark corridor that winds and climbs like an intestine, into a suffocating room where nineteen men wait behind a V-shaped barricade to converge their fire. Inside the tower there is carnage. Quote, the fighters stepped on corpses, crushed wounds, brought forth shrieks by treading on broken limbs, had their feet bitten by dying men. Unquote. Outside, there is an eerie silence and a stream of blood flowing from the tower and smoking in the grass. Quote, it was as though the tower itself were bleeding, like a wounded giant. Unquote. In one of Hugo's distilled and potent phrases, Inside, an inferno. Outside, a sepulchre. Simordan nursed Govan to health when he was a child. He took a saber wound to the chest for him at Dole. He offered his own head to save Govan's before the battle. And now, in the thick of danger, he again appears at his side. I've come to be with you. But you'll be killed. And what about you? But I'm necessary here. You're not. Since you're here, I must be here too. No, my master. Yes, my child. Govan knows that to minimize their casualties and defeat the defenders, they must get behind the rhetoric. He asks for a volunteer to take on the most treacherous of tasks, to scale it. And Radub, characteristically, says, I will. He scales a forty-foot wall, takes a saber wound to the shoulder and a shot to the ear, goes hand to hand with the hideous Chantonivier, and fires on the defenders from behind. This causes indescribable confusion among the defenders, who have no choice but to flee to the third floor. Lantanac's soldiers move a heavy chest across the stairs and inventory their losses. Only seven of the nineteen are left. Their ammunition is nearly gone, their cartridge pouches empty. Quote, they had reached the point where there was nothing more for them to do than to fall. Unquote. Each says his final confession. Lantanac proclaims, And now let us die. And Imanus adds, ominously, And let us kill. And then, that disputed turning stone, the one that many of you were sure would come back into the story, turns. I told you, my lord. You might argue that this plot twist is a little contrived, that the timing is a little too perfect, that you saw something like this coming a mile away, and I might agree. But you know what? I don't care. I am content to allow Hugo a little license, given this novel's overwhelming grandeur. So, Lantanac and his men escape, separate to avoid capture, and vow to reconvene the next day to begin the war again. Imanus remains behind to hold off the enemy as long as possible as the other men flee. Hugo makes Imanus seem 
forgive me for saying it, almost noble in his loyalty to and willingness to die for Lantanac. My lord, you and I have the same duty, to save you. But though the battle has come to its conclusion, this monstrous murderer still lights the fuse, and not only that, blows on it with his dying breath. I still maintain that the essence of his soul is blind vengeance. He is not just willing to commit acts of cruelty, he delights in them. But not because he is pure evil, because he revels in the revenge. He says, What I'm doing to their children will avenge the child who belongs to all of us, the king who's now in the temple. Nevertheless, he is evil enough that we can enjoy seeing Radub thrust a dagger in his guts. And now, Govan's concern, and ours, has turned to the children. The fuse has been lit. The mother stands helpless on the plateau. Lantanac holds the key to the iron door. My goodness, what now? The second of my posts to the Facebook group was my favorites from Part 3, Book 4, Chapters 9-15. through 15. Radub. Radub is my favorite. I want a portrait of Radub, brandishing his saber, crying, Here I am. I'm Radub. Who wants to take me on? If any of you can think of one that at least captures the spirit of this scene, please come to the Facebook group to suggest it. Here are some of my other favorite Radub moments. We are going to make an assault on the Rhetorade, cried Govan. Will anyone volunteer to scale it? I will, said Sergeant Radub. The network of broken bars was hanging askew, and a man could pass through the opening. A man could pass through it, but could a man climb up to it? Yes, he could climb up along the crack provided he was also a cat. That was what Radub was. He belonged to that race which Pindar calls the Agile Athletes. Radub had no weapons, but he still had his strength. Ignoring his wound which had not reached the bone, he pulled himself forward, let go of the iron bars, and leapt into the embrasure. A lot of good it's done you to confiscate one of my ears— well, I'd rather lose one of them than something else. An ear is only an ornament. And last, he timidly ventured another salute. Sir, what is it, Radub? Do I have a right to a little reward? Of course. Ask whatever you like. I ask to be first to go up the stairs. It was impossible to refuse him. Anyway, he would have done it without permission. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called Literature and the Light of Truth. My eldest daughter attended the school I founded, Van Damme Academy, from kindergarten through eighth grade. There she became accustomed to rich discussions of substantive material led by intelligent teachers. Probably needless to say to most of you, that meant high school was a disappointment. She feared college would be too, and considered not even going. Then one day she came to me and said, Mom, 
I want to have the sort of experience I did at Van Damme Academy again. I want to continue to grow. I want to be an educated person. I understood, and it wrenched my heart, but I didn't have an answer. After thought and discussion and research, we decided to explore great books programs. In a traditional great book school, students read books from the Western canon. Plato, Aristotle, Euclid, Newton, Shakespeare, Locke, etc. There are no majors. Every student reads the same body of literature. There are no lectures. The classes are entirely based on discussion. There are no professors. The authors are the instructors, and tutors help steer the student-led discussion toward understanding of the author's ideas. Students spend four years reading, processing, discussing, and evaluating some of the most important and formative ideas of the most brilliant and influential thinkers ever to live. Three weeks in, my daughter's report to me was that she loves school. She says, I know it's a cliché that this sort of education is supposed to give you perspective, but I feel like I'm gaining new perspective. Already. I received a call from her a few days ago. When I picked up, she said with urgency, Mom, have you read Plato's Phaedo? Sadly, though my major is in philosophy, I had to reply, no. Will you, she said, because I need to talk to you about it. This prompted me to pause in grateful reflection, to think about how beautiful it is, one, that she feels a need to think and talk about important moral and epistemological ideas, and two, that because of her background, she has a rich and valuable trove of educational experiences to inform her thoughts about those issues. The latter of these is the point that is most relevant here. In Phaedo, Socrates tells those present at his execution that he is willing to die, for the true man of wisdom should desire death. The quest for wisdom, he says, is the effort to ignore the desires of the body and attend to the needs of the soul. In life, the body stands in the way of knowledge. It is in death, which is no more than the separation of soul from body, that we can discover the light of truth. This brilliant dialogue prompts countless moral and intellectual questions, including, could one be willing to die for an ideal, even if one did not believe in the immortality of the soul? This, I am sure, is one of the questions that animated my daughter's interest. And what immediately occurred to me is that when we do discuss it, we will be able to draw upon shared artistic experiences to give substance to the discussion. Because as it turns out, when my daughter asked me to read and discuss the ideas in Phaedo, I had just finished watching This Land is Mine and rereading our assignment in 93, both of which have scenes relevant to this topic and both of which were part of her 8th grade curriculum. In the film This Land is Mine, and I will have spoilers here, a timid, coddled, frightened schoolteacher played with breathtaking brilliance by Charles Lawton, must face the question of how he will live under the Nazi occupation in France. Morally, he opposes the occupation. Practically, he is too cowardly to resist. 
but over time, as he sees what compliance with the occupation really means, including the death-by-firing squad of his dear friend and mentor at the school, he learns to rebel in reality. He discovers that it is the people's efforts to survive under the occupation that is making the occupation possible. And he says in a public courtroom that sabotage, defiance, resistance, quote, though it may increase our misery, will shorten our slavery, unquote. He knows that making such a public declaration will lead to his own death sentence, and he accepts it. As he is being led to prison by the Nazi soldiers, his love embraces him, sobbing. He grabs her firmly by the shoulders, looks her square in the eye, and says, with sincerity and deeply moving conviction, Don't move, and don't cry. I'm happy. For his ideal of liberty, he is willing to die. And as you well know, in 93, Radub repeatedly asks for the favor of dying. He wants to lead the vanguard into the deadly breach. He volunteers to scale a wall to attack the enemy from behind. He is first up the stairs when he knows that the enemy waits with guns loaded. To defeat the enemy, and, probably more important, to exhaust every effort to save the children, he is willing to die. My point here is not to answer, nor even to raise, this weighty philosophic question. The point is rather that reading great literature stocks your mind with vivid concretes that help you to grapple with vital abstractions. That is one of the reasons why I love to read, and why I love this group. I want to build a set of shared literary experiences with you. Because I personally believe that to discover the light of truth, we don't need to die, but we do need to read. <laughs>